following is a production of Government CIO Media. Hi, and welcome to GovCast. I'm Camille Tutti, Editor-in-Chief of Government CIO Media. And I'm Amanda Ziedet, Reporter with Government CIO Media. Today, we are excited to welcome Pete Newell to the studio. Pete is the managing partner at BMNT, a veteran-founded startup that solves national security problems. Fun fact, BMNT is military shorthand for Begin Morning Nautical Twilight. Pete spent nearly 35 years in the Army, and his last gig there was as director of the Army Rapid Equipping Force. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pete. Hey, thank you. So as Camille mentioned, you spent over three decades in the military, eventually working with the Rapid Equipping Force to harness the emerging tech needed to provide the U.S. Army forces with innovative solutions to fulfill its missions worldwide. How did you end up there in that division of the Army? So depending on the, the version you want to hear, it, it's either an accident or serendipity. I spent the vast majority of my, uh, almost my whole career as an infantryman. And the last job I had before the ref, I was a brigade commander, and I was actually in Iraq. I'm doing a great job, and you know, General Ordiano, who was the force on Iraq at the time, knew he was leaving Iraq and going back to something. Eventually, he'd become the chief staff of the army, and he stopped and you know visited me in Iraq at one point. You know, his, his six foot nine frame sitting on a couch in my office, stretched halfway across the room, and he says, you know. You've done a great job here, and, and I think you have the material to be a general officer, and, and I'm going to take care of your, your next job. And it's the last I heard. And unfortunately, what, the way they handle colonels like that sometimes is the Pentagon has what they call this black book, and it's um, they take the personnel files from you know five or six really high-achieving people, and when the Secretary of Defense needs a new aide or the chairman needs an aide or something they hand them this book and they pick one of those files. So I was one of those guys and, you know, there's six files in there and I think there were five jobs and I was in Iraq and not available and whatever else. But um, when they got done with the circle, I was the only file left. So there was no job left. Unfortunately, when that happens is that really there's no jobs left because the job cycle has ended and General Orniano gets handed his file back and says, here you go. And he had no place to put me. So, you know, he's in the Pentagon talking to um, another three-star who was the G3, the vice chief for operations, and, and said, you know, I, uh, can you help me find a decent place to put Pete Newell? And he said, I have two places to put him. One is my executive assistant inside the Pentagon, and I know Pete Newell, and I know I hate the job, or I have the Rapid Equipping Force. So I ended up in the Rapid Equipping Force. I literally had never heard of it. You know, what I got from... The personnel guys, they sent me a note, and I was still in Iraq. Get ready, ready to redeploy. And I'm going, guys, really, I know that I'm moving in 45 days. Where am I going? And I got a note that basically said, you know, can't tell you about your assignment, but when can you be in Washington, D.C.? And the next thing I got was a note saying, you know, congratulations, you're going to be the next director of the Army's Rap. I had to Google it <laughs> to figure out what it was. It was just, um, and I will tell you honestly, you know, the first thought that went through my head is, what did I do to deserve this? You know, last I heard, I was doing okay. And the next thing I know, is I'm, I'm sitting at some place in Fort Belvoir, and it, it it turned out to be the best thing that, that ever happened to me. Just the opportunities that grew from it is, you know, a fascinating place for me. Be so, careful what you complain about. 
right? <laughs> so when you were leaving the army in 2017, Daniel Gurria of the Lexington Institute wrote a post titled Farewell to One of the Army's Best. What made you the best, or to paraphrase, what made you successful in the military? What Daniel Gray, I think, was writing about most, particularly at period of time in the Rapid Quebec Force. When I got there in, in 2010, I would tell you it was a dying animal. Um, Bruce Jetty, who's now the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, beautifully designed the organization. And... The guys that followed it, I think, didn't quite beautifully execute it, but it, it got to the point where it was really good at, at spitting out products and throwing them over the wall and beating us just about how great it was. It wasn't helping the Army enterprise do better. I came into REF as an operator um, and really didn't care about the products as much as they did the problems. And as somebody with a special operation background, you know, part of it is how do you get other people to do your work? And in my mind, it was how do I recruit people to take care of these problems and just use my resources to get things moving. So I was very honest about what I wanted to do, but I made sure that we built REF as a problem-generating organization to spit things out on the battlefield. In 2012, Defense News, I think, published their first list of the top 100 influential people in the defense industry, and I landed on the list at like 1984. I think the only colonel that I think has ever been on the list. Simply because I got so good at articulating problems and building ecosystems around them that people were bringing us money. In my time on the REF, you know, the $160 million budget in the organization, I invested over $1.5 billion in a two-year period simply because we were really good at, at finding problems and articulating them in a manner that helped us recruit other organizations and people, the team, with us to deliver something to the battlefield. And people were bringing us large chunks of money to do that. And I think that's really what, what Daniel Gray was trying to get at is here's a colonel who's not part of the enterprise system who's invested a billion and a half dollars over two years doing stuff that's good for the Army, and he's done it without um, breaking the law and without any – and I'll call it special permissions. They had a few, but they weren't radically outside the acquisition stream. I read that um, when you were with the Rapid Equipping Force, you transformed a Bobcat into a vehicle – that could protect soldiers from IEDs. Is there something that that you see that's missing today in the battlefield that could be transformed with technology that we have today, similar to that bobcat? Yeah, that bobcat's missing. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I will tell you that you know that's one of those cases where it took us six months from the time we came up with the concept to put that thing on the battlefield, and we built 54 of them eventually. It's essentially, a commercial bobcat with a, an applique robotics package on it and a piece of a, an M1A1 tank mine roller system bolted to it, a software package that was designed by, I think, Sparware, which was a Navy facility, and it was put together by Basin Missile Defense, a place in Huntsville, Alabama, and all that was paid for on an Air Force Research Lab contract. It was interesting because we built that thing to service the infantry squads in Afghanistan. Well, counter-IED equipment like that is the purview of the engineers, and the engineers wanted to build something bigger as an engineer vehicle, not that that kind of stuff. So this is one of those places where REF inserted something on the battlefield that was highly value-added that was in the white space between things. But as soon as we quit doing it, the military, or the Army in particular, reverted back to the parochialism and says, infantry people don't clear minds and think that's an engineer mission. So off it goes, and now we're back to there is no replacement for it oh, anywhere. Really? on the battlefield today. 
So the system is destined to repeat itself again and again and again and again because we forget the lessons we learn every time. Going back to your point about problem solving, so you co-founded BMNT with four others from the Army, Special Forces, the Marine Corps, and the Air Force. And someone on your team described the company as MacGyver if he could be reconstituted as a company. What do you actually do? So I will tell you the company, beyond the fact that it was, it was founded by veterans, we applied what I would call, you know, the special operations type background, but but it is a very diverse organization of people with with current and prior military service. They have several reservists uh, as part of the team, but also I have uh, designers, hackers, and makers that come from the valley. I have hard science uh, folks, uh, data scientists, those types of folks. And it really is the melting pot between us that that takes the best of what we're good at and and allows us to focus on um, hard, intractable problems. In some cases, you look at us as consultants, but we'll go in and tear something apart and look at it and say, here's the data behind it. Some cases, you'll look at us as um, educators, in fact, we spun out a nonprofit that does one of the coolest uh, graduate-level courses in the country. And in some cases, we actually build products of innovation support tools and diagnostics that actually support innovation as a whole. Tell us a little bit more about the educating part that you do. And I believe that Hacking for Defense was is also part of that effort. So we started out, you know, essentially prototyping ways to help people understand how, how innovation really works which, you know, led to my my introduction to Steve Blank. We actually bumped into each other by accident on a serendipity strike. That led to taking, you know, when Steve and I first met, we were in a room that had drywash walls on both sides, and Steve started talking about lean methodology, and I started talking about Oodle Loops in Afghanistan and other things, and realized that the graphic that Steve and I each drew separately were identical. We were talking about the same thing. He'd been teaching it for 11 years I've been applying it on the battlefield for, you know, several. The only difference was the words we used to describe the things and the fact that he started with ideas and delivered products. I started with problems and delivered solutions. Everything else was the same. When we mashed the two together, we realized that we had an answer that uh, the innovation problems and the, the speed of recognition, something's changed in the delivery of solutions, particularly the battlefield of national security enterprise, that that didn't exist before. We were asked, were challenged by some folks to actually build Hacking for Defense as a class at Stanford and did it in about nine months. In the process of doing that, the, the basis for the class is a reverse classroom. There is no there is no lecture in the classroom. It, it, it is essentially taking teams of students who take on a government problem and they literally treat themselves as a startup for 10 weeks. And their job is to apply lean methodology to first validating and working on the right thing and then and then getting through the class. But eventually what happened is the people who were bringing us problems said, listen, this is a cool class, and but I have thousands of more problems and I have a workforce that can't do this. So I'm willing to give you problems if you create um, training for me. So at the same time we were building this academic course, we had to create uh, a series of um, enterprise-level training courses to help other people be part of the ecosystem. And, and that's really where the training basis should come from. So how did meeting Steve Blank, a serial 
a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, change the trajectory of BMNT? Well, you know, first to tell you, I have no business background, so I had no clue who Steve C. Blank was. <laughs> um, we were prototyping something over spring break. Uh, I don't forget what year. I think it's 2014. And we were using a bunch of graduate students from Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business and the engineering school. And we had the teams working, and it just happened that one of the students was taking Steve's Lean Launchpad class. And the student went to Steve and said, hey, Steve, you know, you heard these guys from BMT? They sound just like you and talking. So the guy brought Steve down to the office, and essentially I found out like an hour before the you know, Steve Blank's coming to the office, and will you meet him? And, and I'm Steve who? So in the door comes this short, gray-haired, curly-haired guy, and, and and of course Steve has no idea why he's in the office, and I have no idea why I'm in the <laughs> office, and, and we start this conversation, well, okay, what do you do? And that turned into... Steve starting to carve on the board about lean and me starting to talk about what we were doing. Um, that 20-minute session lasted three and a half hours. We talked for three and a half hours. And Steve, as he walked out the door, said, listen, I love what you guys are doing. I didn't really want to be part of this. He literally said, I want you to take every bit of IP I have in lean methodology, and we're going to rewrite it for um, DOD. And we have been at it ever since. That's a really cool story, actually. Yeah, so the three and a half hours really cut down all the time in the day that you had for everything else you had going on. It didn't matter. I mean, it's like it's just, you know, Joe Felton, I talk about working with Steve in the early days. It, it's like surfing a comet's tail. Steve <laughs> is the hardest working retired guy I have ever met. And, and you know, Steve and I, you know, we talk a lot, but every once in a while I go on a hike in the woods and, and just talk. And the other things we talked about retirement was there's no such thing. Which you, in fact, earned your freedom to work on things that you want to be passionate about. And Steve does nothing that he's not passionate about. Neither do I at this point. Um, which means every you do everything you do, you're passionate about. That you work just as hard as you ever did, but you're much happier doing it. And I want to go back to you teaching and learning. What are some of the most valuable things you've learned from teaching students? The first one is the misnomer of millennials or today's youth not being interested in things in the national security space. In fact, when we taught the, when we decided to teach the first class at Stanford, we had no idea if any student would show up. And, you know, to their credit, we had over 150 students show up at the information centers. We could only take 32 kids in the class, which was astronomical. Now, I'll tell you, flash forward, next year there are 30 universities offering this course. And that, I think, is a testament that there is a high degree of interest in, in and amongst young technologists in our universities who want to do something impactful with their time and their energy. They're just not going to enlist to do it. They, they, want, they want to do what they want to do. They're interested, but, you know, we have sold them short in terms of providing them opportunities to get involved in, in things that are important to the government. So lesson number one is we need to change um, how we provide opportunities for people like that to get involved. And Hacking for Defense has turned out to be a great opportunity to, to do some of that. The second one that I learned from working the students and watching this over – hundreds of iterations right now is is that problem curation combined with lean methodology works. It absolutely works. I've watched it 
time and time again, even when I looked at a problem on a group of students and they say, oh, man, I don't know how that, I just don't see this coming together. It happens. At some point in the process of doing discovery and doing this this rapid iteration of hypothesis development and, and um, real interviews with people, the answers fall out of what they're doing. Sometimes it's at the last second, but but the process actually works. It's a discipline. So we all have 24 hours in the day. You're super busy. So what do you do for fun when you're not problem solving? Is there anything that you like to do when you're not in work mode? So this is fun. There's no such thing as work. (laughs) (laughs) And I say, I don't say that jokingly, but um, when I retired, I had three rules. And one says, I'm I'm not going to do things I'm not passionate about. I'm not going to work with people I don't like, and I'm not going to work with people I don't trust. Um, the the fault side of that is everything you do you're passionate about, and the work life balance goes out the window. It it it's, this is what we do. Um, I work with the I just I can't say enough about the people in BMT. How much fun it is to be engaged with some of them, and sometimes it's really painful, but most of the time it, it really is fun. My wife and I travel. My kids are out of the house. Uh, I got one in Baghdad as a captain and. And another the University of Arizona, so I, you know, I have the opportunity to go places and do things. Um, there's plenty to do there. So we talk a lot and hear a lot about government officials transitioning to private sector, and especially in the IT realm. How was it like for you transitioning from the army into the private sector? It, here's, it, and, I, and I'll give it to you this way, and I'll give you a real anecdote in a second. Um, I probably see four or five messages that people who ask me, hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave the service, colonels and generals and, and senior people who, who have looked at what we're done and saying, okay, you know, you got a really cool life and you own a great business and things that, how do you do that? You know, I'll take them through a series of things. Just, you know, one is there, there are no jobs at BMT. It, it really is. There are groups of passionate people who have come to it for a reason. I, I don't read resumes. I've never, I've never, I've never sent my own resume out. I knew what I was going to do, what I was going to leave. I didn't know how. The challenge a lot of people have is I bought the house, I got the kids in the school, I, I can't move, i got to stay in one place. The challenge that I give to most people is you realize it isn't the expertise you learned in the last five years in government that makes you valuable. It, it's what, what got you through X number of years of service. And if you're willing to start over, the world open to you. But if, if you're leaving government service and you need a job, you're not going to gain your freedom to work on the things you're passionate for if you're just flitting from one job to the next. If if you're willing to strip it all away and start over and say you're relying on, on you know who you are and do something, then you know the world's wide open. So after three decades in the military, where there is a very very clear hierarchy, when you come into the private sector. Is it strange to be working with other veterans when rank no longer matters? I actually did the relief. And believe it or not, it, and maybe I'm different, I've actually never had that conversation with somebody. To me, it was a relief not to be, um, you're the point at the you know, person at the point of the spear all the time, and, and you're the colonel, and, and everything's you know, afraid to talk to you, and you got... Um, 15 people in between you and the ground truth on something. So working in the valley with people of you know lots of different rankers, you just stop looking at rank and anything else. It's not, it's not about even how high you are in the organization. If you're not the expert in something in the room, you're not the expert. 
and you need to sit down and hush up and let the expert talk. And I think that's the, the rule in general. And you said you knew leaving the Army what you wanted to do afterwards? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to go work for somebody else. You know, I got to the point that I was addicted to what I was doing. As I said, that Ruff was really a godsend to me. Um, I never realized that that's what I wanted to do in my life, but I wanted to solve problems and work in that environment. I learned an incredible amount in three years of Ruff, which gave me a lot of confidence to say, I, I can go do something else. And, you know, the idea of moving to Silicon Valley, um, you know, long before there was a DIUX, I actually hired guys in Silicon Valley to be the ref proxy out there. And it was one of those guys, Joe Felter, who, who became my partner, who, when he heard me say, hey, I'm, I'm going to retire, said, great, <laughs> you're going to move here, right? And we're going to keep doing this, but we're just going to do it from the other direction. So I moved to Palo Alto to start being, I didn't have a job. Um my wife and I agreed that, you know, we had enough money to survive there for a year. Um, I had a, my youngest son was starting high school. And we, what we agreed to was to put uh, four years into Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, even if it meant we would move into a one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment to do it. And at that level of commitment freed me up to go through the repetitive start something, fail, start, fail, start, fail, until you actually settled on a business model that actually worked. Year two of BMT was ugly. I mean, I went without a paycheck for a year. And in Silicon Valley, that's not a, it's not a pleasant thought. How did you meet this group that you co-founded your company with? Serendipity struck again. <laughs> for the third time. No, actually, it's been multiple times. Um, I was working on a subterranean problem, robotic, the subterranean robotic control problem in Afghanistan. And I was looking for some of the leading experts in non-line-of-sight robotic control, um, which means no cables, no cords. And you know, one, of the, one of the folks was a professor at Stanford. So I made a trip out to Stanford. I had never been to Palo Alto. In fact, I've been to California a couple of times. I didn't even know where Stanford was. And I showed up to, to see this professor, and about the time... Uh, Joe Felter, who is now, he's on leave from BMNT to, to serve time back in the Pentagon. Joe had just retired from from the Army as a Special Forces Colonel. And he was back on, um, back at Stanford working and had been there for like, I think, two weeks when I got there. So Joe was kind of assigned to shepherd me around campus and we immediately got lost. Um, I eventually found the professor and, and essentially, I didn't get the solution I was looking for. Just, it, it wasn't a solvable problem in the time frame I had. But as we're leaving, Joe and I got to start talking about the problems that I was facing. And Joe was like, oh, yeah, and I get that. And we got to the edge of camp, and he says, hey, why don't you take a ride with me? And we literally jumped in his car, and we did what I call a pub crawl to startups. We just went and talked to people he knew. And I would find the most fascinating people in the garages. And... They'd tell me what they were building, and I'd tell them about my kind of problem. We'd have a great conversation, and they'd pull out napkins and business cars. And, you know, it was just, it was just um, exceptionally intellectually stimulating to have those kinds of one-on-one conversations with really bright, brilliant people. Well, it got to the point that I was sending Joe, you know, two or three problems, and he was translating in something that made sense in the Valley, and he'd run around and recruit people to come to Stanford. I'd show up a month later, and... 
there'd be a classroom full of, you know, students, professors, investors, startup folks, and just, you know, curious bystanders. But in that room, I would find five or six people that I could actually agitate into doing something. If, if I tried to do that in Washington, D.C. as the ref director, I'd have to go through thousands to find those type of people. I was spending a lot of time in Stanford. I got the point that I just couldn't. So I eventually hired Joe to, to be my proxy. I would send him stuff, and he would do this, and we turn this into a real model. And um, Joe then hired William, which is one of my partners, and another guy who, who didn't last very long with us. But um, it was that synchronization. Eventually, I was doing so much work on the West Coast that, that I had a $100 million um, program management problem. The $100 million worth of work being done on the West Coast and, and all my program management people in Washington, D.C. And, and that kind of work, they call it fragile. It's high risk. It's high risk of not seeing something and taking advantage of the ability to accelerate something or high risk of it coming apart at the seams because nobody was there to make sure everybody was doing what they're supposed to. So I, I asked some folks here, their own program. It says, I, I need somebody on the West Coast who has, you know, program management, acquisition, background, whatever. And, you know, a week later, I got a call and said, hey, um, guy in Crystal City, say, stop by my office. I have somebody for you. And and I dropped in, and there was this woman uh, who had been building satellite systems and doing program management for folks in Los Angeles who was tired of working in a skiff and wanted to do something cool and then outside. And we probably lasted through a 10-minute conversation, and I hired her for rough. No resume. No resume. Um, eventually, I read her resume. I, there was a whole thing. There were a bunch of things I never knew about her until later. I was like, oh, my God. If I'd known that, I would have paid you three times as much as I did. <laughs> um, thank God. You know, when serendipity strikes in the same place multiple times, eventually you realize that, that you are creating the opportunity for really good things to happen. And if you want to reach Pete, you can hit him up on Twitter. He is Peter A. Newell. This episode is sponsored by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about the company, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. It's so wonderful that Pete was so willing to share so many of his personal stories with us today because that's exactly what we are trying to do with GovCast. Exactly. I just love hearing people's personal stories. These days, we usually get the headlines, the news in a podcast, but I'm really interested in the personalities, the people behind the headlines, like I keep saying, Um, learning about what makes people tick, their passions, how they react in certain situations, and most of all, also how they were able to overcome challenges. That is something that I find really great because people can learn from that. Yeah, as a journalist, we meet so many people. We talk to so many people. Um, but oftentimes, you don't really get to know the person themselves, just kind of what they're doing, their office, their organization, their government agency. Um, so it's really special to be able to hear people's anecdotes and how they got from where they were to where they are. Right. We know the technologists, we know the CTO, we know the CIO and the CISO, but we really don't know the stories behind, you know, Jane Doe, who is the CISO. 
What has her journey been like? You know, what is her story? So we really hope you enjoyed Pete's story. We'll be back next week with a full episode of GovCast, but we hope to do more personal stories and, and spin-offs of our interviews with our uh, special guests. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Camille Tootie. And I'm Amanda Ziedet, and this is GovCast. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced by Tracy Madigan and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Mm-hmm.